Please turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. On this uh, Palm Sunday, uh, as we begin a week in which we move in the direction of uh, the first, first day of the week, the resurrection, the celebration of the Lord Jesus, we really do begin a, a week of activities, and if I could I really encourage you about this, that I encourage you to, to take some time each day and, and perhaps to read in each of the Gospels just the narrative of the passion of Jesus the last week of his life. For example, Mark chapter 11 and through the end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, and let me encourage you to be quiet and reflective and, and to interact with these passages. Um, there are lots of folks who observe that we we make way more of Christmas and Advent than we really should. For if there were no Easter, there would be no Christmas. If there were no Holy Week, no Good Friday, no Monday, Thursday, no entrance into the city, there would be no Christmas. This is the week. This is the week. And so let me encourage you. Uh, to take advantage this week of the opportunity to reflect on these things, beginning this morning. And so let me read uh, from Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses, Mark's account of Jesus' entry into the city. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and it will be sent back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word for us, his people, and we thank him for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, having given us your word, now again we ask that you would give us your spirit, and that by word and spirit we might be changed. Come, come to that end in that way, with that power, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I started uh, attending church when I was in uh, about the third grade. And uh, here's the reason that I started going to church. I'd, I received a letter from the church in which I was baptized. To my knowledge, I hadn't been in that church from the time I was baptized until I was in the third grade. Uh, at least I have no recollection of uh, having been in that church from the time of my baptism when I was about two and a half. My sister was about six months, four months, something like that. 
We were baptized together by Pastor Ted Greenhoe. Uh, nobody from our house went to, to that to that church uh, after I was baptized, First Presbyterian Church, Niles, Michigan. Um, I'm not the only one who was baptized, whether in a Presbyterian church, Episcopal church, Baptist church, Carried whatever church. Lots of people get baptized because they think it seals some sort of deal, and then it's sort of over after that, and they don't think about it anymore. That's not the case, but that's not what this sermon is about. Anyway, I started going to this church because I got a letter from the choir director who was new. And the choir director invited me to come and sing in the choir. I was maybe second grade, second or third grade. And I liked to sing. I liked singing in school. I liked singing Home, Home on the Range and This Land is Your Land and all of those folk kinds of things that we would sing in my elementary school. And I figured going to church was going to be more of the same. And uh, clearly it wasn't started to learn all kinds of music, all kinds of wonderful, wonderful music. And I have these wonderful memories of Palm Sunday uh, in which we would sing every year on Palm Sunday, we would sing the palms. Do you remember this hymn, this song, the palms o'er all the way, green palms and blossoms gay are strewn this day in festal celebration where Jesus comes to wipe our tears away, e'en now the throng to welcome him prepare, join all and sing, his name declare, let every voice resound with acclamation, Hosanna, praise to the Lord, bless him who cometh to bring us salvation. All the choirs would process in singing this great, great hymn, this great song, year after year after year. And somewhere in those early years of my going to this church, I went to Sunday school a couple of times. I I don't remember going to Sunday school much at all, but I do remember going to Sunday school. And I think it was later in like fourth or fifth grade, there was a little book for our Sunday school class, and the book was entitled, The King Nobody Wanted. The King Nobody Wanted. Now, You know, I'm in fourth or fifth grade, and I can't get my head around these two things. Palm Sunday, people waving palms and singing Hosanna, and the title of this book, The King Nobody Wanted. I couldn't, couldn't, there was a dissonance about that, right? There was, I experienced at my young age, cognitive dissonance. I couldn't make sense of it. And it's clearly stuck with me. Why didn't they want him? Why didn't they want this king? Why didn't they want the one whose praises they had been singing? Why didn't they want this one who healed people, who did miracles, who clearly was a good guy? Why didn't they want him? And even today, as I read the narrative of the gospel, or as I, the the narrative of Jesus' triumphal entry into the city in the gospel of Mark, and as I I read the gospels, I realize that, that I still experience 
cognitive dissonance when I'm reading the Gospels and when I'm reading the story of Jesus and when I'm seeking to understand the Gospel, I I experience this cognitive dissonance because the Gospel in its entirety, at its core, is so absolutely and utterly counterintuitive. It runs against the grain of everything. I'm inclined to think that I think instinctively. And that, that dissonance is here in this passage in some really interesting ways. So here's what I want to do as we head into this Holy Week. As we move in the direction of Monday, Thursday, Jesus' last supper with his disciples, followed by his betrayal and and his arrest and his arraignment and 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 his trial and and then judgment being passed and then on Good Friday that judgment being carried out in his execution and then between his execution and and his death at the end of the day and what what I prayed in my prayer that excruciating silence between his entombment and his resurrection on the first day of the week, as we move in the direction of these things, I just want to give us some things to think about. Just some things to think about this morning and tomorrow and through this week. And I really do hope you'll do this. I hope you'll reflect on this. I know you, most of you, I see some faces I've not seen before, so I don't know you, but but for so many of us, these things are so familiar. And, And if familiarity doesn't breed contempt, at the very least, it breeds an indifference. Oh, yeah, Palm Sunday. Oh, yeah, Good Friday. Oh, yeah, Easter Sunday. Oh, yeah, been there, done that. Got that T-shirt, bought that hat. God, have mercy upon us and help us this week that these staggeringly significant things not, not pass by without some reflection and consideration. So here are some things for us to contemplate and reflect upon. Some ways of maybe thinking rightly. First, some ways of thinking rightly about ourselves. Some ways of thinking rightly about ourselves. Now, there's a lot in this little passage that warrants reflection. Uh, a lot in this passage that you ought to contemplate. Um, not the least of which, some questions that sort of emerge, is, is this business of this donkey. And, and this donkey being tied to a post outside somebody's house and Jesus knowing that the donkey is there. Now that's worth reflecting upon, isn't it? How did he know the donkey was there? And then, and then another thing worth reflecting upon. The two guys who, who are his disciples who go get the donkey and who just take it. I mean, imagine that you're walking out of the building this morning and there's a couple of guys out in the parking lot hot-wiring your new Lexus or your old Buick, or whatever it is that you have. And you say, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. Yeah, I mean, like, come on. 
I mean, let's reflect on these things a little bit. The Lord has need of it. And, and, and then, of course, they say, and don't worry, it's coming back. Well, how's it going to get back? Who's going to bring it back? How do these things happen? See, there's a lot in here that's not addressed. But here's the thing that's worth reflecting upon. And I think in past years I've mentioned this, but I want to dwell on it a little bit more. I want to dwell on this very, very intriguing thing concerning this donkey and what the people do when the two disciples bring the donkey for Jesus to ride upon. What is it that they do? You notice in the text, what they do is they put, they put their cloaks, their, their coats, their pulpit robes, whatever it is they have, they put their cloaks on the back of the donkey. Now, the passage that's being referred to here is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, O Zion, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John quotes it in his narrative of the entry into the city. The other writers of the Gospels just allude to it. That's the passage that's being referred to here. That's the prophecy that's being fulfilled here. The colt, the foal, the offspring of a donkey. And when they bring that donkey, what do they do? They put their coats, their cloaks on the back of the donkey. Why do they do that? You ever wonder about that? Why do they do that? Well, let me suggest to you the reason they do that is this. Here is a king, right? And what do we do for kings? What do we do for royalty? What do we do in Hollywood when stars show up? You roll out the red carpet, don't you? You create a buffer, don't you? You create a separation between the exalted one and the potential that there is for contamination. So that the feet of the exalted one don't touch what might contaminate them. We create a separation, a buffer, don't we? There's a great story, and I think actually it's the background to this you can check it out. It's in, it's in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's the story of, of the ascension of King Jehu, who is anointed by one of the servants of Elisha. And, and he's with his buddies. They're having dinner. And this servant comes in and takes him into a private room and dumps a bunch of oil on his head and, and anoints him as king. And the two of them come out and the servant flees. And his buddies say, what happened? What was going on in there? And he says, well, look at my hair and my beard and my clothes. I've been anointed king in Israel. And you know what his buddies do? They take off their coats And they put their coats on the ground so that he can ascend or descend and not touch the ground. Because to touch the ground for the exalted one means that the one who touches the ground might become contaminated. We create separations, don't we? 
Look, this will preach, folks. This will preach. We don't just do it with literal kinds of things. We do it. Don't we do it? Ooh, it pains me to say it. We do it in all kinds of sociological and socioeconomic ways, don't we? Haven't we heard? Don't we hear? Think about this. This is the application of the sermon. We hear that there are two groups of people in our world who sense that they are entitled, the poor and the rich. But know this, you're always poorer than somebody and you're always richer than somebody. And so the sense of entitlement is never far away, is it? We create these buffers and these separations. That's what these people were doing. They were creating a buffer, a a separation between Jesus, the exalted one, and those things that in their minds they believe would have contaminated him. They put robes on the back of the donkey. They put robes, cloaks on the ground, the pathway that Jesus would take up into the city. And then they started cutting leaves from from trees and branches and throwing all of these things on the, on the ground so that the donkey then himself wouldn't touch the ground so that there could be an indirect connection between Jesus and what would contaminate him. You know where I'm going, don't you? You know where I'm going. You know, there's that story. I heard this 30 years ago, and I know I have mentioned this to you. There's that story that R.C. Sproul refers to from the Old Testament in his series of sermons, series of talks called The Holiness of God. And the story comes from 2 Samuel 6, and it's the story of Uzzah, the Kohathite, one of the tribes in the Levitical priesthood, one of those groups of people who had specific instruction about how the ark, the blessed ark of God, that contained the tablets of the covenant, that contained the almonds, that was the place above which the very glory of God would rest and dwell and reside in the midst of the people. Uzzah, a Kohathite of of the Levitical tribe, one who knew that the way you were supposed to transport the ark was to use these long staves and slide it through these gold rings on the corners of the ark and carry it. But Uzzah and the rest of them put it on an ox cart in violation of the explicit commands of Almighty God. And when the ox cart began to slip and and tip and, and the ark looked like it was going to fall off the ox cart into the dirt. Uzzah, thinking that the dirt would contaminate the ark, touched the ark and was instantly killed. Instantly. No, Ray, it was not a capacitor. It was not. It was the wrath of God. It was the wrath of God visited upon one who thought that he was clean and who thought that the ground was dirty and that contamination would come from the ground. But contamination comes not from the donkey. Do you know why a donkey never sat upon before was chosen? Because donkeys, like mules and horses, have to be broken before they can be ridden. But this donkey never rebelled. 
was pacific, perfectly content, perfectly at ease for Jesus to sit upon him. The fool of the donkey didn't disobey. There's no corruption in that creature of God. There's no corruption in the dirt. Where is there the potential for contamination from the cloaks of rebels who in just a few days would cry for the blood of the very one they are praising? The contamination is there, my friends. The contamination is you. The contamination is in me. And you know what the wonder of the gospel is? This is such a glorious picture of the gospel. You know what the wonder of the gospel is? Jesus embraces my contamination. Jesus embraces my contamination. That cloak is a symbol, a picture of what it is that I am clothed in. And I am clothed in unrighteousness. I am clothed in transgression and sin. And Jesus is not afraid, ashamed, or in any way reluctant to take my cloak and wrap himself in it. Mark chapter 1, one of the most powerful and touching pictures of this in all of Scripture. Mark chapter 1, the end of the chapter, the leper who rushes to Jesus and pleads him for healing. And it is such a profoundly and powerfully significant thing that while Jesus could heal him with a word, he casts out a legion of demons from legion the demon-possessed man with a mere word. While Jesus can heal him with a word, he doesn't merely speak the word. He embraces the leper. Jesus takes his uncleanness to himself. As I make my way in the direction of Good Friday, I need so very much to remember who I am, what I am, apart from Jesus Christ. That I am unclean. That my cloak is a cloak which Jesus has taken away from me and in which he has wrapped himself and wrapped in the cloak of my uncleanness. He has gone to the cross and there he has suffered in my place. A rejected king. And that leads me to the second thing about which we need to have some right thinking. Right thinking, secondly, about Jesus. 
I wonder if we make this connection. I have to read this passage for you again. I wonder if we've made this connection. I I tried to pray about it in the pastoral prayer. I find that my own little brain can't wrap itself around these things that are just juxtaposed in the scriptures, that are woven together in the scriptures, which you see side by side interwoven with each other. This idea of Jesus coming in fulfillment of everything that is prophesied concerning kingship. Way back in in Samuel, a king was promised to Israel. A king was given to Israel. And then to David, the promise was made that there would never be a time when one of his seed would cease to sit upon the throne. A king was promised. A king was going to come. A king is coming, majestic in glory. And yet when that king comes, he appears in humility and weakness and emptiness. He depends entirely upon the kindness of other people, particularly a group of women. For his daily sustenance, put those two things together. You see it here in Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And then this verse, dissonance, cognitive dissonance, jarring dissonance. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who's the cornerstone? Who's the foundation stone? Who is the one upon whom everything is built, around whom everything else is constructed? It is this chief cornerstone. It is Jesus. And he is rejected. He is a king who comes bringing salvation. He is rejected. And whose doing is it? You remember, don't you, the Diane Sawyer interview with Mel Gibson. Mel, she said, did the Jews kill Jesus? Again, Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus a third time? Mel, did the Jews kill Jesus? And Mel says in response to Diane's question, Diane, don't you get it? We killed Jesus. And the answer is, you're both right and you're both wrong. This is the Father's doing. This is the Father's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It was the good pleasure of the Father to crush him. Isaiah 53. Can you wrap your mind around these things? And so, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice 
and be glad in it. Look, I've seen the refrigerator magnets. I bear you no ill will if you have one of those on your refrigerator. One of those little refrigerator magnets that says this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But let us understand the day that is being referred to in Psalm 118 is the day upon which the cornerstone is rejected. And because of his rejection, you are set free. You are liberated from the curse of your own sin. And that is marvelous in our eyes. That is the day the Lord has made. And it is that day that we rejoice in. It is that day that we are glad in. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. And then the last part of verse 27 Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Where is that fulfilled, my friends? Jesus, bound, led away, not against his will, not against the will of his Father but according to their eternal counsel. Bound away up, not to the horns of the altar in the temple, but up to the supreme altar, the cross, wherein he being born away suffered and died bearing the cloak of your unrighteousness. Let's think rightly about Jesus. There is a crown, my friends. There is a crown. There is a reign. There is a king who has come. But are we clear about this? Before there is a crown, there is a cross path to the glorious reign is through the cross of crucifixion. And then the third thing, the final thing, as we move into this week, let's think rightly about the outcome of the cross. Let's think rightly about ourselves. Let's think rightly about Jesus. And then let's think rightly about the outcome of the cross. In this passage, there are palm branches. This warrants a sermon all on its own. In this passage, there is reference to palm branches, leaves of trees that are cut down and that are placed on the road and that are waved as people sing their hosannas, singing praise to the Lord. What's the significance of palm branches? I read a bunch of stuff this last week about palm branches. I I know this is going to sound arrogant, but I got to tell you, the stuff I read misses the point. 
You know what the palm branches are a reference to? Paradise. Paradise. You know how it's possible to be prophetic without knowing that you're being prophetic? You know how Caiaphas said, not knowing what he was saying, (laughs) it is necessary for one man to die for the whole nation, not having any idea what it was he was talking about. You know how it's possible for even a donkey to be prophetic? Remember Balaam's ass? That's what I feel like up here sometimes. You know how it's possible to be prophetic without realizing you're being prophetic. These people lining the street, headed into Jerusalem, following Jesus, waving palm branches, are being prophetic. They are directing the attention of any who had eyes to see and ears to hear. They are directing the attention of any of those toward the restoration of paradise. You know, it was carved into those wood panels on the inside of the Holy of Holies. Go read in Exodus. And then later when Solomon is building the temple in 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, 1 Kings, I'm sorry. Palms are carved into the panels that create the holy of holies, the place where the glory of God dwells. What is the holy of holies? Folks, it is a picture not just of a place where God lives, where he chooses for his presence to be. It is a picture of the restoration of paradise. The holy of holies itself is a picture of what God intends, of what his purpose is. And his purpose is the restoration of all things. Creation restored, something we've looked at in Romans 8. The devil defeated something that we are looking at in the Revelation. And a people redeemed to dwell forever in that paradise restored. That is the goal the final outcome of the cross of Jesus. And just, just to put some, some very personal and very intense spin on that vision, do you know what Jesus' last prayer was before his passion? You may know where it was. It's in John 17. But do you know what his very last petition is before his betrayal and his arrest and his arraignment and the judgment of guilty passed upon him before his execution? O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' last prayer before his betrayal was for you, that you might be with him where he is in the midst of a glory you can't begin to comprehend. This last Friday at the Women's Refuge Bible Study, Donna Robart asked me this question. She said, talk some. Talk some about the relationships among the persons of the Trinity. She said, you've talked about that at church over the last several years. You've alluded to it, but, but talk about it. And so for the next 30 minutes, what I did was try to help folks understand, based upon the hard work of Jonathan Edwards, which I tried to read again last night, and again find it to be a labor and yet so rich and rewarding, reading Jonathan Edwards' essay, The End for Which God Created the World, The Purpose for Which God Created the World. In that last 30 minutes at the Refuge Bible Study, I tried to describe what it is that is at the core of the Trinity as I understand the Scriptures and what it is that is at the core of the Trinity is love, the Father finding in the Son an object so lovely, so beautiful, so righteous, so glorious, an object sufficient to His capacity for the enjoyment of beauty, and the Son finding in the Father an object sufficient to His capacity, his infinite capacity for delighting in what is beautiful and righteous and good and lovely, and the Holy Spirit's infinite capacity for delighting in something which is infinitely beautiful and lovely, and something which, as all of that is moved and worked together, creates a joy that is complete and overflowing. And Edwards' answer to the question, why did God create the world, is reflected in Jesus' final petition. The end for which God created the world is that God might glorify himself by distributing upon the objects of his affection the joy of his own existence. When Jesus prayed for you, the last prayer that he prayed, his prayer was that you be gathered up into the midst of that incomprehensible love and joy. Paradise. It is that to which these palm branches point. As we move into this week, let's understand not only who we are, not only who Jesus is, but what it is that Jesus has come to do. Gather you, his beloved people, up into the joy of his own fellowship with his eternal Father. God be praised. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these things are beyond us and we need desperately your Spirit.
And so as we move into this week, give us grace, as we prayed earlier, to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and length and breadth and depth of the love of God for us expressed in you, in your person, in your work as our Redeemer and Savior and friend. We ask in your name. Amen.